0: let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would speak to our hearts and um, that you would just teach us through it. God, we want to respond to uh, to what you're saying to us tonight. And so we pray that you would uh, just do that work in our hearts and in our lives for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Bible overview, right? We are. Moving through, uh, trying to get a big picture perspective of the Bible, so that as we're then coming back on our own time and reading the Word, we have a better awareness of sort of how it all ties together, what we're looking at, what's going on. And so we've gone through, you know, already this year, we've gone through what's now called the Pentateuch or the Torah, which is like the, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the law, in a sense. Uh, and then we've gone into the histories, which was from the book of Joshua all the way through the book of Esther we've gone through the poetry uh, which was Job, Psalms, Proverbs Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon we went through the major prophets and now we're in the minor prophets and we said it before but we'll say it again they're not minor because they're subpar they're minor because they're short Uh, they're shorter books you could fit them on one scroll in the ancient world and so these were all clustered together And so we're moving our way through the minor prophets. And tonight we find ourselves in the book of Jonah. Jonah opens up, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, Jonah should be uh, just about the shortest book in the Bible. It should be, verse 1 and 2, the Lord came to Jonah and said, Arise and go up to Nineveh. And then it should say, Jonah went and preached, and people repented. Jonah's known as a prophet. His prophecy is the shortest prophecy anywhere in the scripture. So uh, collectively, the book could be like four verses long uh, if, if, if that's how it had panned out. But it's not. Why? Because in verse 3, we see this interesting little thing. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah's a prophet. Uh, Jonah's job is to hear the voice of the Lord and pass it on to people. And the Lord says, "Jonah, I've got a message for you. I want you to go to Nineveh and declare judgment against them." And Jonah says, "God, I've got a news flash for you. I don't want to go." And so I'm going to r- actually run away from your presence. And really Jonah is a is just a great book of the Bible. It's probably the most it's the most famous of the minor prophets. Um, But it's the story of a guy who's trying to uh, get away from the call of God on his life. And so Jonah tries, in verse 3, he says to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, it's an interesting little line because in Psalms 139, David writes in verse 7, and he says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's like the the depths of the earth, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. David says, where can I flee from your presence? I'm always surrounded by the presence of God. Jonah says, I bet if I get on a boat, I could probably outrun God, right? And this isn't like, you know, I mean, whatever. Regatta weekend's coming up. We understand in Madison what fast boats look like. This isn't one of those, right? Jonah's crawling along at, you know, a couple miles an hour, if he's lucky, uh, trying, to, trying to sail away from the presence of God. But he's trying to go basically as far away. If you look at a map, uh, most people think Tarshish is probably in like, Spain, So basically, Jonah's trying to go to the farthest end of civilization that he can find at that point in world history. And so Jonah's going to just run from the Lord. If we go fast enough, you know, all we got to do is go two miles an hour to God's one mile an hour or whatever, and, and we'll be good. And so the story of Jonah, uh, because it's so familiar, we don't have to spend huge amounts of time on it. But basically, the Lord sends a storm. And the ship is in danger of sinking, and all the sailors say, well, what do we do? And so um, basically, they realize that Jonah's disobedience is the cause of the storm. And they say, Okay, Jonah, what should we do? And uh, it says, then, verse 11 of chapter 1 So they, that's the sailors, said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. These guys are in the middle of, they're on a very small vessel. Uh, especially by today's standards, in the middle of the Mediterranean, which has huge storms. And they realize Jonah's the cause of the storm. And they say, what do we do? In verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Jonah doesn't say, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's try obeying the Lord. Let's try repenting and seeing what happens. He says, no, I've got a great idea. Throw me overboard and I'll drown. Because I would rather drown than obey the word of the Lord right here. Right? Jonah is trying to get away from the presence of God. So he tried going to the far ends of the earth. That didn't work. So he's got this brilliant idea now he can outrun God by sinking. Because God floats or something according to Jonah's logic. So Jonah says, throw me overboard. And the men try not to. But they basically realize that's their only option. Because Jonah isn't in the mood to repent. So repentance isn't really an option. So they chuck Jonah overboard. And the Lord, in verse 17, says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, some people uh, have a hard time reconciling this in their mind because they say it doesn't work logistically that you could have a fish or a whale or a sea creature of some sort swallow a man and have the man stay alive for three days. There's a couple of things with that that you need to bear in mind. The first is go back to Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And so, if God is sufficient enough and powerful enough to not only think up, but then also create things like atoms, things like the laws of gravity, things like light wave frequencies, uh, things like, you know, magnetic forces, things like uh, water currents, you know, just things like bringing water from the roots of a tree to the top of a tree, all these little things that we are still figuring out, that we still have no clue how they work. If the Lord is able to not only conceive those, but actualize those, um, it's really not that much of a stretch to say, I bet the Lord can make this really giant, this really big fish, right? And in fact, we have animals in the sea today that are large enough for this to pull off. So it could be that this is a literal whale or sea creature, it could be that the Lord created a specific fish for this purpose. But either way, there's, if, if you can accept, if you've made it this far in the scriptures, there's no reason to doubt that this is an actual historical event. So we'll just, we'll kind of go for that. Uh, Jonah's in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of, his, of the fish. Jonah gets points for resolve, Right? Jonah is trying to get himself drowned because he doesn't want to obey the Lord. He gets swallowed by a fish, and he sits in stomach acid for three days, right? And at that point, you've got a pickled prophet who decides, I have had it. I am fine. I, I, am, I am done, right? And, and just, I mean, you know, we have uh, really one of the great crimes of children's Bibles is that they give us these horribly warped ideas of what life looked like, right? Jonah was not sitting, you know, we have this like, I don't know, your standard children's storybook, uh, you've got this giant cave that has water and like a half-sunk boat, and Jonah's sitting on the boat, and it's somehow well-lit, always, in the pictures. I don't know why. Jonah is sitting in pitch-black darkness, uh, he's probably squeezed in on all sides, right? There's probably not a lot of elbow room, and he's sitting in acid. Uh, and if it is a whale or a, if it's a true whale uh, or something of that nature, he's sitting amongst uh, digesting food, right? Jonah's sitting in a pile of rotting fish guts in vinegar, in the dark, in the heat, uh, you know, whatever it is, 90 to 100 degrees inside a whale. And he, and he hangs on for three days because he doesn't want to do what the Lord tells him to do, okay? Listen, sometimes obeying the Lord feels like the hard, hard thing to do. It's not. Obeying the Lord is, in reality, the path of least resistance. So Jonah prays to the Lord. He says, all right, God, I'm sorry. I'll do it right. So the Lord has the fish spit Jonah back out on dry land. And uh, so Jonah now is in the middle of fish vomit, as well as all the vinegar and everything else. So chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So the Lord says, All right, let's do this again. And Jonah says, Okay. Jonah obeys. Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and he gives a prophecy. He says, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And what happens? Nineveh repents. It's really probably the greatest single revival in human history. uh, Up to the present time. Right, Uh, I mean, Nineveh, historical estimates say it's probably close to a million people. And the entire city repents, right? From the bottom of the economic stratosphere to the king. Everybody repents and accepts the word of the Lord for what it is. And the Lord removes his judgment from the city and spares it. But then we get this interesting commentary uh, on the nature of Jonah. Because Jonah then becomes frustrated at God for being gracious Jonah uh, chapter 4 verse 1 but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry he prayed to the Lord and said please Lord was not this what I said while I was still in my country therefore in order to forestall this I fled to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity God I knew you were a soft touch people repent and you forgive them of all the nerve, right, you have the audacity forgive, to forgive people who cry out to you for forgiveness. I cannot handle this. Therefore, verse 3, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. God, I cannot handle you pouring out your grace on people. I would rather be dead. Jonah is, is really one of the most fascinating books in the Old Testament because we get to watch, truthfully, we get to watch a racist man upset at the judgment of God because he thinks he's entitled to more grace than other people. And uh, so then the Lord rebukes Jonah and and the the book ends really at sort of this weird cutoff point. And and we're not told what Jonah does. The Lord tells Jonah, Hey, it's right for me to be gracious. It's right for me to care about these people. Okay, what are you going to do about it, Jonah? You're right now currently more obsessed about your own petty desires and I'm concerned about human beings. And the book ends, and I think it's, you know, some people speculate that Jonah then repented and, and sort of wrote the book as a warning, and I think that's very possible. But I think the book leaves it open-ended because in part, we're supposed to ask ourselves, what do we do with the grace of God? Does it bother us when certain people receive the grace of God? Does it annoy us to think that other people might receive the exact same privileges in the kingdom of heaven as we might? And Jonah is, is a warning to us to bear in mind who we are before God. Because we can lose sight of this sometimes. Who are we before God? Well, we've been given the full righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? We've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the word of God. We've been given in Ephesians, it says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Christ. And so does that make us just like a little awesomer than other people or what, right? Like we have every spiritual blessing. And the Lord says, no, 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 I'm offering that to everybody, right? The Lord says, hey, yes, you have every spiritual blessing and so does every other loser in the world, right? You are in the club and you have therefore no rights to entitlement. And I think it's important for us as Christians and especially uh, as American Christians and we can get in this sort of club mentality of... Us and them. And, and those losers versus us intellects. And, and, you know, the people who think they know what's wrong with this country and the people who really know how to fix this country. And, boy, you know, if we were in power, we could really turn things around, couldn't we? Um, yeah. Uh, no. What, what do, we, where do we... We have received the grace of God. And what should we hope for every other person in our world? The grace of God. Right, And so in that sense, Jonah offers a, very, uh, it offers a very beautiful picture of God's heart for the world. Because the Assyrian people, if there was a group of people who you could, in your own pride, say they don't deserve the grace of God. It was the Assyrians. I mean, Jonah's call here was not easy. It's the equivalent of the Lord telling one of us, Hey, why don't you go witness to North Korea? Or why don't you go witness to ISIS? And just tell them that they're going to be destroyed and just see what they say, right? It's not an easy call that Jonah's asked to do, but he's given this message by the Lord because the Lord cares about the hearts of people, right? And so we need to keep that in mind and bear in mind that yes, the grace of God is a beautiful thing, but no, it does not make us more than others, right? It makes us part of the welcoming committee. It makes us part of the family of God so we can invite others into the family of God so that's Jonah Uh, moving on to the book of Micah Micah chapter 1 verse 1 says the word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham Ahaz and Hezekiah the kings of Judah which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem so we get a little bit of a time and space context here for Micah We're told the kings that were reigning during his time. And we're told that he was given visions uh, for... Or he's given a word from the Lord concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So if you remember, when the nation of Israel came into the land of Canaan and conquered it, they eventually divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. A lot of the prophets wound up just having a ministry to one or the other. Micah's going to go to both. And Micah... um, it's, a, it's an interesting book. It's a book of judgment and a book of promise. And so in that sense, it's really a lot like uh, most of the Minor Prophets. But um, somebody has said that it's all about the Lord coming. It's about the Lord coming in judgment. It's about the Lord coming in the person of Jesus Christ the first time around. And it's about the Lord coming again during the Millennial Kingdom when he's going to put the world to rights. And so we get to see... Uh, really all three of these throughout the book of Micah. Um, Chapter 3, verse 11. We're just going to hit a couple highlights here. Uh, The Lord is pronouncing a judgment against the people. And he says, Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priest will instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So the religious system is completely corrupt. The political system is completely corrupt. And they're trying to pass it off as if the Lord's completely condoning it. And the Lord says, that's not how it works, guys. I value integrity. I value fellowship. And you're blowing me off. So there's going to be consequences coming. And then in chapter 4, he shifts. And Micah, um, you know, we've said this before. But it's very much true with Micah. As well as a lot of the prophets. And that is that... Hebrew prophecy is not often in a straight line, right? The Lord jumps around a little bit when he's giving prophecy because he's outside of time. And so, and besides that, he's God. So if he wants to give it to us in reverse order, that's his prerogative. And if you have a problem with that, you can take it up with him, not with me. So chapter 4 says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, let us Come and let us go up to the mountains of the Lord, into the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples, and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each one will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled. This is a prophecy about the Millennial Kingdom. At the end of the Great Tribulation, Jesus will come down and set up an earthly kingdom... For a thousand years. Satan is going to be bound, and the, the Lord is going to set up His throne in Jerusalem. He's going to touch down uh, on the Mount of Olives. The mountain's going to split in two. The whole topography is going to change, and Israel is going to raise up. And so He's describing uh, basically the nations of the world are going to come to Israel. That's going to be the headquarters of the Lord's kingdom, uh, and so. That's where we find Ezekiel's prophecy of a temple. Uh, Most commentators would say that's when Ezekiel's temple is going to be built. It's going to be a thousand years of Jesus ruling the world, of the earth really uh, functioning the way it was designed to function, the way the Lord created it originally before sin corrupted it. Um, And so we're looking forward to it. We're absolutely looking forward to it. It hasn't happened yet. And so, you know, it says here they'll hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. You know, pacifists love to quote that verse. But that verse works great when Jesus is in charge and Satan is chained up. Uh, until that time, somebody once said, the man who, you know, until that time, the man who beats his sword into a plowshare is going to plow for the guy who didn't. And so, uh, you know, we look for peace. We love peace. We long for peace. But we also live in a world that requires justice. We live in a world that, requires government and law and order. And so we, don't, we can't deny that as Christians. Christianity never calls for pacifism. It calls for uh, justice and, and living out the word of the Lord in submission to the governing authorities as much as we can. Uh, but it never calls for just complete absolving of all law and order. It calls for a lot of law and order. And so... Uh, Chapter 6 of Micah gives us this great, uh, just this great commentary on the Lord. It says, Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. The Lord says, hey, everybody listen up. I have a complaint against Israel. Right? A lot of people complain against God, but in this case, God's going to complain against Israel. Uh, Verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. People, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Some translations say, so you may know the saving acts of the Lord. The Lord just say, what have I done to offend you? Let's run through the list. Oh, I saved you from Egypt. Right, that was offensive. Uh, Oh, I delivered you from slavery. Yeah, that was really bad. Uh, I delivered you, I gave you quality leaders. They weren't perfect, but I gave you great leaders. Yeah, that was awful. Um, Remember uh, Balak and Balaam came against you? Yeah, I protected you from them too. I'm so insensitive. And the Lord's offering his complaint. And so he says, with what, verse 6, shall I come before the Lord and bow myself down before God on high? He says, bearing in mind what I've done, What is your proper response? And now Mike is asking this question to the Jewish people, but very much so it applies to us. Because we call to mind the works of the Lord, and then we ask ourselves, what's the proper response? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Should I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What can you offer to God uh, as a substantial response to what he's done for you? Right? How could you possibly express an awareness and an appreciation for what the Lord has done? Well, chapter six, verse eight, He has told you, oh man, what is good? Oh, isn't that isn't that nice? You know, the Lord loves to give us open book tests because He knows we're too stupid to, to handle it any other way, right? What does God require of you? Here it is, um, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Our response to God is to do justly, right? We just talked about, you know, we, we live in a world of order and law to love kindness, right? We need to see justice and mercy side by side and to walk humbly with your God. We, we show appreciation for what the Lord has done by walking in fellowship with the Lord by responding to what he's done. There was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer back uh, during World War II. He was a German pastor. And he had a line. He said, grace is free, but it's not cheap. Uh, And it's very true. Uh, The grace of God is completely free. Every single one of us can respond to the grace of God. But it's not cheap because it cost Jesus Christ his life. Right? It was not this cute little thing that he handed out. It was the wrath of God poured out on you know, what should have been us. And Jesus absorbed all that so that we could be clothed in God's righteousness. And so to not respond to that is to treat it like it's a toy. Right? It's free, but don't treat it like it's a toy. The grace of God requires a response. And what's the response? To do justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly... With our Lord. And then uh, chapter 5 in verse 2, just as we're wrapping up Micah, uh, gives us a prophecy about Jesus Christ's first coming. And he says, and he, But you, Bethlehem, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. Micah, uh, throughout the book of Micah, he references all these little towns. Uh, some people he would have been a contemporary of Isaiah but most of Isaiah's ministry happened in Jerusalem and a lot of the towns that Micah references were so small that we really have no idea where they were at okay Micah was just a guy in a small town serving the Lord great just like every single one of us right Uh, and so but he's the Lord's encouraging the people who Micah's word is coming to he says hey you little town Bethlehem you're too small to even really count from you comes The ruler and so he's given us this prophecy about the coming of jesus christ and the jewish people recognize that as a prophecy about the messiah really from the time of micah when the wise men came to jerusalem and they said where would your messiah be born the priest said uh bethlehem and the wise men said great thanks and they went and found him so micah is uh it is the judgment of god right but it's very much the promises of god as well and then, as we're wrapping up for the night, we're going to come to the book of Nahum. Nahum, uh, Nahum is one of those guys that we know virtually nothing about. We know that in verse 1, it says, The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. So, that's it. If you know where the Elkishites live, then you know everything we know about Nahum. And nobody knows where the Elkishites lived. So, uh, we know that his name was Nahum. That's like it. Uh, but he's a prophet of the Lord. And he gives a prophecy concerning Nineveh. Now, we just covered Nineveh, right? Jonah went to Nineveh. Nahum, in the time period, we can can track a little bit of, of the time. He's about 100 years after Jonah. And so, what happens? Well, Nahum is a prophecy of judgment and destruction against Nineveh. Nahum prophesies about the destruction of Nineveh because of their wickedness. And you say, wait a second. Jonah preached in Nineveh and they repented and the Lord turned away his wrath. Yeah. He did for that generation. But a new generation rose up that never repented of their sins. Right? And the Lord extends grace based on past actions to an extent. But every generation has to reckon with the Lord for their actions. Right? Every generation, every individual stands before God on the basis of what they knew and what they responded to. And so... A new generation arose after the time of Jonah. The the people who repented in Jonah's day did not pass it on. They didn't pass on a legacy of surrendering to the word of the Lord. And so what happened? Nineveh fell back into wickedness. And Nahum comes along to prophesy about their destruction. Um, So, uh, verse 2, it says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, we've got to pause just because we're here and sometimes you get to a portion of the scripture and you just got to pause and address it. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? Because we hear that sometimes and jealousy is a negative connotation, right? So is there something bad about the character of God? Well, let's back it up a second. In human terms, when somebody's jealous, what does it mean? Let's, let's put it in a, you know, in a situation a guy has a girlfriend and he's jealous. What does that mean? That means he's suspicious every time she says anything nice to another dude, right? How could you love anybody else as much as you love me? And in human jealousy, that's a bad thing. That, that's, a, that's a sense of like possessiveness that leads to, you know, awful behavior, right? And, and the answer to how could you love anybody more than me is, well, you're a jerk. Um, so in human jealousy, it's a bad thing. Why? Because... It's this magnifying of who you are and this minimizing of who everybody else is, right? I'm awesome. Every other dude is a loser. How could you like anybody other than me? How could you love anybody other than me exclusively, right? If I can't have her, nobody else will. That sort of thing. When it says that God is jealous, it's a, you got to put it in the context of what? God is perfect. God is holy. So when God says, how could you love anyone other than me? What's the answer? There's no way. There is no There is no reason that you could logistically love anyone or anything more than the Lord. Except for your own self-will and your refusal to surrender to the Lord. But when the Lord says basically, you know, when a a guy says, I'm the best ever, what's the answer? Uh, By virtue of the fact that you just declared it, you proved that you aren't. When the Lord says, I am the best ever, I am holiness, I am righteousness, what's the answer? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Yes, he absolutely is. And so when he claims that role of a jealous God, he's saying, I have a right to be protective of my name because my name actually can live up to a standard that nobody else's can. So we just got to keep that in mind. We don't want to put on, we don't want to put a sort of a human term onto the Lord and then misunderstand the character of God. But verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So the Lord is, he's jealous. And it says he's going to, he has wrath because he has to deal with wickedness. But what? He's slow to anger. Verse 7 says, the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, verse 8 is interesting because it's a, actually a historical prophecy. Nineveh fell because there was a flood that destroyed part of the wall, and that's how their enemies got in. Um, but understand, you know, putting, put this in context. What have we got? The Lord is jealous and wrathful, and he's taking vengeance on his adversaries. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is good. Right? We put those in context together, and we have a picture of the holiness of God. And we can't ever really divorce the two. Because, uh, because love, you know, we have this idea in, in our modern context that you can just love everyone and everything. That's ridiculous. Love is always tied to hatred. Because if you love something, you will hate that which threatens your love. If you love your children and a rabid dog is coming toward them, you're going to hate that dog enough to destroy it. Right? To love something means to hate that which threatens it. And so the Lord... Uh, you, we understand you know, the Lord is good. The Lord is slow to anger. But the Lord also has wrath. The Lord takes vengeance because the Lord lives and dwells in such holiness, right, in, in a level of holiness that we in our earthly state can't even fathom that he cannot allow wickedness into his presence, right? And, and oftentimes we, we, you know, we wrestle with in, the, in what seems like the injustice of the world A lot of people ask, how could a loving God allow this to happen? And that's really the wrong question. The question is, how could a righteous God allow anyone into his presence? And so we see the judgment of God very clearly in Nahum. But we have to see simultaneously that Nahum is giving us a picture of the love of God and the goodness of God. And they're tied together. You don't separate the two. We don't have a nice God and a tough God. We don't have... We try and sometimes split like... Well, there's Jesus and then there's God the Father. No, no, no. There's God. Right? What, is, what do we know about God? He's good. He's slow to anger. He's jealous. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. Those are not contradictory terms. They have to go together in order for each one of them to be fully true. Okay? So, uh... Nahum then he goes on and he, he prophesies the destruction of Nineveh but in context especially tonight as we're, as we're covering Jonah and Nahum sort of side by side there's a couple things that we've got to keep in mind and that is that every individual and every nation stands before God and the Lord judges them based on what they've done with what they've been given and you know the people of Nineveh repented in the time of Jonah that was great you know a a ton of people got saved. That's a wonderful thing. That didn't mean that 100 years from then, that everyone was still serving the Lord. That didn't mean that the people 100 years from then were entitled to some sort of free pass from God, right? No, they had to stand before God for their sins and for their wickedness. And we have to understand this because we can get this idea that God owes us something because of what's happened in the past or that God owes our country something because of what's happened in the past. Right? People have this idea that God is somehow entitled to preserve America because it was founded on biblical principles. And don't get me wrong, I love this country very much. And I'm thrilled to death that America was founded on biblical principles. I think America came closer to a perfect form of democracy than any other civilization in all world history. But that does not change the fact that our current generation still has to stand before the Lord for what it is doing. Right? That doesn't change the fact that... Our nation is still walking in complete and open rebellion to the Lord. And the Lord will deal with it because the Lord is righteous. He is slow to anger and he's good, but he's a jealous God. And he will take vengeance on his adversaries. And we have a whole civilization right now that's destroying children. Right? And if children manage to survive the, the womb, then we mutilate them when they're in public school. We mutilate their minds and we mutilate their bodies. Right? We have, we, have a, we have a society that's destroying every idea of reality and truth. And we say God owes us something because we're a Christian nation. No, God does not. God does not owe us anything because he's God, he's holy. And, you know, we look at prophecy prophetically. Here's the deal. Like it or not, America is not a world player in the end times. America as a nation is not a significant, does not have a significant role in end times prophecy. All of the global power is going to shift to the Mediterranean area. And you say, how could that happen? Well, here's how it happens. The Lord raises up nations and the Lord takes down nations, right? So what do we, so we see that and we say, well, what do we do, right? Do we throw up our hands and say, well, judgment's coming, you know, too bad for you. Whole things, are you allowed to say going to hell in a handbasket? Because that's what it's doing. Um, it is, whatever. Um... But, you know, we, we can sort of just, like, write it off. Well, whatever. Uh, no, what do we do? We respond. Why? Because the Lord has told us what to do. What does the Lord require of us? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. And, and you know, we don't know for sure how the Lord is going to deal with America. We're not told that. So we have room to wonder if he's going to deal with it through a revival. It's possible that the Lord wants to bring an incredible revival to the United States and then rapture us all out of here, and there's nobody left. That'd be fantastic. So we respond individually, and that can at times bring national repentance. But the Lord will raise up and take down nations at his will. Um, But what he wants to do is draw individuals to him. So what are we doing on an individual level? You know, we, we have a responsibility to be uh, nationally aware, to be nationally active. I think every Christian should vote. But at the end of the day, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. We respond to the grace of God in our lives by taking it seriously, by living it out, and by letting it then impact us. And if the Lord then gives us the call of somebody like Jonah and says you go preach a message of repentance then we go and preach a message of repentance right the Lord calls us like Micah to to preach all these small towns that nobody will ever hear of right you know some of us are going to be called to preach in Smyrna and Chelsea and Nab and Lexington and wherever else right and we do it faithfully and and whatever comes right if the Lord destroys the United States the way he destroyed Nineveh then every individual still has their chance to respond to the grace of God. And so, what are you doing individually? Are you responding to the grace of God? Are you walking with the Lord? Are you living that out? Right? Because the Lord created you for fellowship with Him. The Lord wants nations to repent, yes, but the Lord wants individuals to fellowship with Him. Jesus did not come and die for the United States of America. Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended into heaven and gave us the promise of His return and sent us the Holy Spirit. What? For you. For you. And you. Right? For us as individuals. So that we can walk with him and have fellowship with him. That's our privilege. That's our call. Right? So, there we go. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We got two weeks left in the Old Testament, guys. Assuming we make it through. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would Uh, send it deep into our hearts that we would uh, not just hear it and walk away and say yeah that's great but that we would uh, be changed by it that we would let it move in our hearts and stir our souls we pray that you would uh, just send your holy spirit to guide us to convict us to draw us closer into your presence and lord we do pray that we would be people who walk with you Lord, we, we pray for our nation. We pray that you would stir up a spirit of repentance, that our nation would repent, turn from its sins. God, we believe that you are capable of, of pouring out your Holy Spirit in a phenomenal revival that's beyond anything we've ever seen. And we pray for that, God. We pray, we pray that in belief that not only that you can, but that you want to. And we ask that you would do that. But Lord, regardless, we want to see you working in our lives. We want to see your word accomplishing what it set out to do. And so have your way with us, God. Teach us, guide us, and be with us. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.